Hello again, everybody. This is uh, Jason Powers. So today we're gonna um, we're gonna discuss false flags. We're gonna discuss um, the various things that have been going on in our country for the last, well, probably since World War II. Um, if for those of you out there that don't realize it, probably we had um, intelligence gathering <laughs> capabilities that sought out and. and were notified of the fact that the Japanese fleet was approaching Pearl Harbor prior to it and it was allowed to happen. This intelligence was coming from the British. The British have always been involved in this stuff. One of the things about having a uh, far-reaching empire as the British did, uh, they had, uh, had operatives in various countries and they continue to hold operatives in various countries and they've been involved in our uh, operations for good and ill sometimes I would say very much on the ill side to be destructive to our country and destructive to our way of life but that being said that's that's um, that's the objective of certain people at the very top of these uh, organizations or uh, countries who have been there for years but they have assets and those assets give them information and those that information Gathering techniques often um, don't uh, don't get tracked down as much as they should. So today we're going to uh, mainly focus on 9/11. Uh, James Corbett put together an excellent documentary, and I'm going to play a few clips from that, and then we're going to go into COVID after that uh, because there's some crossovers. I wrote an article or articles. Um, because I think there's going to be a substantial amount of inter interplay with what's been going on since 9-11 or actually started according to Cor Corbett really in the late 80s and around 1990 uh, with uh, extremism and whatnot. There's always been a ramp up to all these things. So we're going to discuss those. Um, <clears throat> in particular, in his case or in his... Uh, scenario that he uh, put together he has he has been hyper focused on this particular topic and I appreciate that because uh, from my from my standpoint on 9/11 <clears throat> I was in a wholly different place in terms of, of my personal life um, I literally on the day of 9/11 I know exactly where I was I'm sure everybody else does too but I know exactly where I was at that moment in time um, and um, I'll be honest about it because this is about revelations and revolutions. Uh, and by revolutions, uh, or resolutions, sorry, <laughs> revolutions too. So the revelation is I was uh, sitting in Marion County Jail. I was watching uh, the towers go down on closed circuit TV while being locked in a, uh, in a cell block. Uh, I remember the cell block was 2B in the Marion County Jail. Uh, there was about 48 people in that block, somewhere around that number. Um, and of course, we're all amazed, worried, uh, don't know what's going to happen next. Um, our thinking, you know, revolved around probably a host of things. You revolve around, you can't get out of where you're at. Uh, you don't know what's going on. You don't have anybody to talk to. Uh, you have to kind of listen to what's going on. And that was in a time and a place when I still believed in the media, uh, or at least 
believe the media wasn't in on the on the, in in on the on the game, which I think uh, more and more we should realize that the the media is controlled um, by our federal governments, um, and that's across the world, whether it be the BBC or uh, the various ones uh, that are around the world. Uh, they're they operate at the behest of the government. They operate uh, with the government's blessing, and they, therefore they can only put out certain information uh, to the expectations of the government. There's, you know, there's the idea in the United States, and it is a very true idea that the media is only owned by a handful of corporations, and that would be ostensibly true. If you look at the ownership uh uh, diagrams, and you look at who actually the institutional owners and institutional investors are of certain uh, corporations that own uh, certain properties, you will realize that stuff, stuff like, for example, well, I've talked about this before, BlackRock, State Street, and, and Vanguard companies. And Vanguard is owned uh, as a privately held company that is invested in by some of our former presidents and uh, former security uh, advisors. So I'm just laying the background on the network that uh, obviously the media has a great deal to do with this stuff. So we're going to go from there. Um, but I'm going to play three clips from this particular two-hour video that uh, Corbett has put together. Um, he has a part three that's coming. I'm wanting to go back, but this part two is excellent because it talks about the, the secret history of Al-Qaeda. Um, and the secret history is uh, how how much they were uh, assisted by our uh, intelligence agencies around the world, but in particular the CIA, and and how they uh, had access to. They knew they were tracking. They understood what was going on. They had time and time again opportunities to do what they needed to do, and at the course of course of time at that particular point in time. Uh, the CIA was headed. The CIA director was George Tenet. Why is George Tenet important? Well, he overlaps between two administrations, particularly the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. He also goes to Sun Valley uh, quite often, and he talks with Tim Cook. Now, he's been seen out there. They have conversations. Um, he's been heavily. He's a, a director at Allen and Company which is a huge conglomerate that uh, puts together deals for major corporations to to work, uh, let's just say, to uh, coalesce together. Uh, basically, one company buys out another company, um, and they do these deals, and uh, Allen & Company has been heavily involved in companies like Google, uh, Apple, AT&T, etc., etc. So yeah, Tenet is a big player, has been a big player, and his, I'm sure, once you're the director of the CIA and you are a director of CIA under two presidential administrations, you have a little bit of, a, let's just say, a little bit of push, uh, or certainly enough uh, pull to get whatever it is that you need to get done. It just so happens, like I said, Tim Cook, we know Apple and we know about all the circumstances as far as data collection there. And it just uh, another background information is at the time of 9/11, the the uh, the director of counterterrorism in the United States was a guy by the name of Joseph Coffer Black, who was a CIA trained operative from the 1970s under Bush. 
under George Herbert Walker Bush, who was then the director of the CIA. Um, anyway, Coffer Black is an important name because at that time frame, he went from there to being the vice chairman of Blackwater. He then became the director of uh, foreign, um, his uh, foreign, basically he was given foreign policy and military uh, terrorism uh, analysis to one Mitt Romney during for five years from 2007 through 2012. And then later, in February of 2017, he became a uh, director on the board of Burisma. And we all know who Burisma is. Uh, that's where Hunter Biden wound up at. So isn't it interesting how you have somebody like this who's bounced, uh, who went from, and during 9-11, and he was a big player in 9-11. I mean, very big. I mean, he was one of the people that everybody knows who he is, but doesn't know who he is. He's a spook. That's the whole point. Um, I'm just going down that road because it lays the foundation for so much of what else is going on. He plays just, he, he gets just a very minor uh, cameo in this, but uh, and we're also going to tie in 1-6 with this, but let me uh, go ahead and uh, start playing this. And I'll shut up for a few minutes, and then I'll come back on, and then I'll do some more talking, et cetera, et cetera. So. Up operations in the name of fighting the Al-Qaeda menace. The FBI began an international investigation of the bombing. The CIA began a surge of reporting on terror threats that counter-terror officials later complained overwhelmed the system and diverted attention and resources. And in November of 1998, the United States federal court finally issued its first public indictment of Osama bin Laden. The first international arrest warrant for bin Laden, a confidential document intended only for police and judicial authorities, had in fact already been issued in April of that year. But it was not issued by the U.S. Instead, it was the Libyan government that had issued the warrant through Interpol, they were pursuing the terror mastermind for his part in the murder of two German intelligence agents in Libya in 1994. At the time, despite publicly recognizing bin Laden as the premier financier of international terrorism, the US and British governments downplayed the document, even making sure to scrub the charges against Osama and any mention of Libya's role in issuing the document from the public record. But this surge in activity around the Al-Qaeda threat resulted in at least one surprising development. In one of the most consequential and underreported moves in this redoubled counterterrorism effort, Ali Mohammed was finally arrested. Contacted in the days after the bombing, Mohammed admitted to FBI agents that he knew who had carried out the attack, but would not give the government the names. Subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury in the Southern District of New York, he was finally arrested although even the charges against him were kept secret from the public. On October 20th, 2000, Mohammed pled guilty to involvement in the embassy bombings, but he was never sentenced. He then disappeared from sight forever, held in what was later reported as protective custody. To this day, there is no public record of Ali Mohammed, the ex-US sergeant and FBI asset who admitted to his key role in Al-Qaeda, ever being sentenced there is no public record of his incarceration, and there are only a handful of accounts that have ever surfaced from people who talked to him in prison in the aftermath of 9-11. And, just like that, one of the deepest mysteries of the Al-Qaeda story disappeared from public sight, never to be seen again. But 
despite all this. It just so happens that, yeah, uh, this this particular character, Muhammad, <laughs> of all names. So, yes, he was uh, best um, stationed here at stateside as a military, uh, like you said, sergeant. Um, his uh, role started as early in the in the early 90s. He'd been a part of an FBI informant operation. And it turns out he was also working with or a part of the Al-Qaeda. FBI about that time was having major, um, there was major goofs made by the the intelligence operations that were going on. I forget, there's a, I forget the name of it, it wasn't just him, but um, people that were revealed that were double agents inside of our operations. So the idea of trust is pretty hard to get amongst these people. But the thing is, is uh, they are allowing certain things to go on, and they do allow th certain things to go on over and over again. Our next little clip here, um, I'll let it speak for itself. Is that Corbett does an excellent job of of uh, putting together these uh, uh, particular uh, stringing the ideas together. You have to just watch the whole thing. It's an excellent watch um, because I mean, for those uh, that are let's just say not. Uh, savvy on this particular topic it will become very clear why you should watch it so go ahead i'll go ahead from there next two decades every one of these assertions was a demonstrable lie this alleged team of crack al-qaeda operatives did not move through europe and america unnoticed their communications were not rendered opaque to the intelligence agencies because of fiber optics their successful penetration of America's defenses was not due to a failure of imagination. Instead, as even the official story of the attacks now concedes, every major branch of U.S. intelligence had key pieces of information on these Al-Qaeda operatives, their communications, their movements, and their plans. In fact, as can now be shown from official sources, these agencies not only deliberately allowed these operatives to proceed unmolested, but actively stopped investigators and agents within their ranks from blowing the whistle on the plot. At the FBI, Special Agent Robert Wright led an investigation into terrorist financing called Vulgar Betrayal that managed to uncover a money trail connecting a suspected Chicago terror cell to Al-Qaeda. But when Wright attempted to bring criminal charges against the cell members, his supervisor flew into a rage, shouting, You will not open criminal investigations. I forbid any of you you will not open criminal investigations against any of these intelligence subjects. After the embassy bombings, when Wright's team began to trace the financing of the attacks to a group of Saudi businessmen, the FBI moved to shut down the investigation altogether. Wright was kicked off the case in 1999, and vulgar betrayal was officially shut down in 2000. Knowing what I know, and again, this was written 91 days before the attack, Knowing what I know, I can confidently say that until the investigative responsibilities for terrorism are removed from the FBI, I will not feel safe. While Wright was pursuing the financial trail, FBI field agents across the U.S. were picking up on another trend. Muslim extremists learning to fly. Agents in Oklahoma and Phoenix both wrote memos about the large numbers of Middle Eastern males receiving flight training and warned that some of them had documentable ties to Al-Qaeda, but the warnings were ignored. 
Agents in Minneapolis frantically sought approval for a search warrant to search the laptop of Zacharias Musawi, a suspected terrorist who had been receiving flight training in the area. When that request was denied, one exasperated agent told FBI headquarters that he was trying to keep someone from taking a plane and crashing into the World Trade Center. Rita Flack, an intelligence operations specialist at headquarters who had read the Phoenix memo, failed to pass that info on to any of her colleagues involved in the decision to deny the warrant to search Musawi's laptop. FBI whistleblower Colleen Rowley later revealed that agents in the Minneapolis office, desperately trying to find an answer to the question of why the Bureau was deliberately sabotaging the case, faced the problem with Gallo's humor. I know I shouldn't be flippant about this, but jokes were actually made that the key FBI HQ personnel had to be spies or moles, like Robert Hansen, who were actually working for Osama bin Laden, to have so undercut Minneapolis's effort. The Pentagon's intelligence branch, meanwhile, not only had foreknowledge of the plot, but, according to information that emerged years later and was quickly suppressed, had identified four of the presumed terror operatives and mapped out the network connecting them to the Brooklyn cell headed by the Blind Sheikh. Able Danger was a classified information operations campaign against transnational terrorism launched by military intelligence in the fall of 1999. First revealed to the public in June 2005, Able Danger employed data mining techniques on open source and classified information to identify networks of likely terror agents, including those operating in the US. The program was remarkably successful. Not only did it warn the Pentagon of an impending attack just days before the coal bombing, as we have already seen, but, according to Defense Intelligence Agency whistleblower Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer and four of his colleagues working on the operation, Able Danger identified two of the terror cells connecting Al-Qaeda to the alleged hijackers. It even identified four of those suspects, including Mohammed Atta, by name. When Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer tried to set up a meeting between his supervisor and FBI officials in Washington to discuss a collaborative approach to tracking these cells, he was rebuffed by lawyers for the Pentagon's Special Operations Command. Shortly thereafter, Schaefer was ordered off the Able Danger team and the unit was disbanded, with the Pentagon ordering all the Able Danger data, 2.5 terabytes worth of information, equivalent to one quarter of all the printed material in the Library of Congress, destroyed. After a hostile investigation that left witnesses feeling intimidated into changing their story about Able Danger, still found five Pentagon employees who said they had seen the organizational chart with Ada's name on it, the Department of Defense Inspector General concluded that Able Danger had never identified Ada or any other alleged hijacker. And, just two months after the story became public, including Schaefer's revelation that he had met with 9-11 Commission Executive Director Philip Zelikow and told him all of the details of the program in an extensive hour-long debriefing in Afghanistan that did not find its way into the Commission's final report, the DIA stripped Schaefer of his security clearance, essentially ending his decades-long career as a military intelligence officer. Mr. Speaker, this is not some third-rate burglary cover-up this is not some Watergate incident. This is an attempt to prevent the American people from knowing the facts about how we could have prevented 9-11, and people are covering it up today. And they're ruining the career of a military officer to do it, and we can't let it stand. The NSA, meanwhile, despite the scrambler and fiber optics excuses of the agency's apologists, 
We're monitoring all of the communications going through Al-Qaeda's pivotal Yemen communications hub, from the lead-up to the embassy bombings, straight through to the execution of 9-11 itself. This communications hub, discovered in 1996 when the NSA began tapping into and transcribing the satellite phone calls of bin Laden, was, in fact, the home of Ahmed al-Hada, one of the jihadis who had fought alongside bin Laden against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Hada's phone was used by various al-Qaeda-linked operatives to pass messages to each other, as some countries blocked or monitored calls to other countries as possible terrorist communications. The NSA listened as Mohammed al-Awali, one of the bombers involved in the embassy attack, made multiple calls to the hub before and after the attack. They listened as al-Qaeda operatives called the hub to discuss attacking a U.S. warship in the months prior to the coal bombing, and they listened as numerous terror suspects called to discuss their operations with Khalid al-Maidar, one of the alleged 9-11 hijackers and the son-in-law of Ahmed al-Hada. Thomas Drake was a decorated United States Air Force and United States Navy veteran with a background in military cryptoelectronics who had worked for 12 years as an outside contractor at the NSA. 9-11 was his first full day as an employee of the agency, and it was in the wake of that attack that he was handed a report from one of his colleagues in the NSA. So um, I got to go further there. I mean, this whole thing is interesting because it's a lot of factual information. It's a lot of con connecting the dots. So Tony Schaefer, who I'm following and am been, have been followed by on Twitter, just so happens he was a, a part of the the uh, the election um, trying to uncover what was going on with the election. He did so in Pennsylvania. Um, he had a um, um, a man, I forget his name, who said that he had transported from New York uh, <clears throat> ballots to the Pennsylvania area, uh, a substantial amount of them. He was asked to or requested to do so. And, of course, that was never run down by the FBI. He later had a conversation, and I, I uh, actually I think I do have a recording of it, he had a conversation with a New York resident who uh, does a uh, does a podcast or uh, does a broadcast nightly from uh, called Quite Frankly. And uh, as it turns out, Schaefer was contacted at one point by William Barr, who was the obviously the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, this was a contact that was made after the fact, after the election. He had a, a short conversation with uh, Barr uh, requesting he uh, no longer be involved in the situation, uh, that his uh, services were no longer needed. Uh, and it was a very direct conversation, evidently, after, you know, for no unearthly reason. William Barr, of course, was the attorney general under George Herbert Walker Bush. He was a lot, and also, uh, you know, he was being he was hand selected uh, by many forces that were um, trying to get Trump to put him in place, and Trump, of course, obliged and had William Barr, uh, you know, uh, run up there as the Attorney General. Uh, of course, the media, you know, and of course, all kinds of lefties were all involved in this stuff. But Barr brought in his uh, brought in his particular group. Because uh, he worked for uh, Kirkland Ellis, and they worked in the White House, and they worked at the DOJ. And Kirkland Ellis, as it turns out, was involved with the Pennsylvania election. 
As a matter of fact, there was a contact made by a Kirkland Lawless lawyer who made threats against some, uh, evidently made threats against the, the Trump uh, uh, group that was trying to stop them from uh, uh, looking in or being involved with that election. That is going on. So <clears throat> why I'm saying this all is, it, is, is a, there's a determination, at least in my opinion, uh, that uh, yes, we have people who work in these intelligence agencies and the FBI and the DOJ and the CIA that all have these vested interests to, to can, uh, they have to continue to cover up stuff. I, uh, I hate to say it, but Trump was a dupe for many things. He may have been able to uh, puzzle out that, that, yeah, there was a, you know, the media sucks and there's a swamp and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think he was ever even close to realizing how, how dangerous uh, of a situation he was involved in. Um, that these people will do anything, including uh, commit uh, mass murder, which is what 9-11 turns out to be, if you think about the 3,000 or so people that died on that day. And they're willing to do anything to cover that up. And, of course, that's where this uh, whole situation and this, uh, this, uh, <clears throat> this is going, that we were, uh, that the United States government was part and parcel to the, the entire cover-up of this. So I'm going to go forward with uh, what's going on here. Let me find the spot in the, that Corbett puts together. And like I said, this is just... Um, these are just my extraneous thoughts, and we'll go further than this, but I'm going to go ahead and play this. <clears throat> they knew. They knew. But neither Sufan nor anyone else familiar with the hidden history of Al-Qaeda should be surprised. When put into its context, this episode is a perfectly predictable continuation of the same pattern of intelligence agency aid that, as we have seen, defines the story of Al-Qaeda. It is sometimes said that in order to be successful in their mission, the intelligence agencies have to get everything right all the time, whereas the terrorists only have to get lucky once. But the Al-Qaeda terrorists, protected, shepherded, and aided by the intelligence agencies as they demonstrably were, did not get lucky once. They got lucky over and over and over again, time after time after time, year after year after year, from their earliest beginnings, through their development and growth, through their rise to international prominence, through every major terrorist attack of the 1990s, and right up to the doorstep of 9-11. At this point, the incompetence theory of failures and missed opportunities is not only not supportable, it is a transparent falsehood. There is only one conclusion possible. These terrorists were deliberately aided this is not fringe conspiracy thinking. Even Richard Clark eventually came to this conclusion. For me, to this day, it is inexplicable why, when I had every other detail about everything related to terrorism, that the director didn't tell me, that the director of the counterterrorism center didn't tell me, that the other 48 people in CIA who knew about it never mentioned it to me or anyone in my staff, in a period of over 12 months. They were stopped from getting to you and stopped from getting to the White House then. Yeah, and stopped from getting to the FBI and the Defense Department. We therefore conclude that there was a high-level decision in the CIA 
ordering people not to share that information. How high level? I would think it would have to be made by the director. Have you asked George Tennant or Kofor Black or Richard Blee about any of this after the fact? No. It kind of, the facts tripped out to you over time, right, over these investigations, and then you started to Took seeing, a while. Yeah. And so you've, you've never approached them, so what's the deal? You used to be kind of buddies with Tennant, right? So Look at it this way. They've been able to get through a joint House investigation committee and get through the 9-11 Commission, and this has never come out. They got away with it. They're not going to tell you, even if you waterboard them. <laughs> that the former top-ranking counterterrorism official in the United States has publicly accused the former director of the CIA and other top CIA officials of running an operation involving the accused 9-11 hijackers and then covering up that operation and information about it up to and through 9-11. An incredible accusation recorded by two independent filmmakers and freely viewable on YouTube for the past decade is apparently of so little importance that it has never been followed up on by any major media outlet. But Clark's version of the story, explosive as it is, that these accused terrorists really were terrorists, that they, like Ali Mohammed, managed to triple-cross the intelligence agencies that were trying to use them as double agents against al-Qaeda, and that the highest ranks of those intelligence agencies, up to and including the director of the CIA, engaged in a cover-up of the entire affair, indirectly allowing 9-11 to take place purely to save their own skin, demonstrably cannot be the full story. As we now know, these 19 men were no devout Islamic fundamentalists driven by their devotion into striking against the infidels. These alcohol-drinking, strip-club-attending bumblers who, at one point, lived with an FBI informant and who left what investigators described as a deliberate trail behind them were not master spies capable of triple-crossing the CIA. They did not coordinate their plan to coincide precisely with the live-fly hijacking exercises, military war games, and planes-into-building training drills that were taking place on the day of 9-11. They did not overpower the military-trained pilots on four separate planes before a single one of them could so much as send out a hijack signal. They did not know to commit those hijackings precisely in the highly classified radar gaps that made their planes' movements opaque to flight traffic controllers. They did not pilot those planes through maneuvers that even experienced pilots called tough for any airline pilot, despite never having sat in the cockpit of a jumbo jet before. They did not cause three buildings to pulverize themselves in mid-air, falling directly through the path of most resistance at freefall gravitational acceleration with two planes. They did not decide to fly around the Pentagon to miss the Defense Secretary's office, and instead hit the section of the building where bookkeepers and budget analysts were working on the problem of the $2.3 trillion that Donald Rumsfeld had just 24 hours earlier admitted could not be accounted for in the Defense Department's budget. They did not commit the informed trading that three separate academic studies have proven did take place in the run-up to 9-11. They did not engage in the decades-long cover-up of these facts in the wake of that attack and they did not launch the war of terror that sometimes saw the U.S. and its allies using al-Qaeda as a convenient excuse for aggression in foreign countries, and other times saw them actively collaborating with al-Qaeda to achieve their geopolitical goals. No, 
Richard Clark's story is itself a cover-up. The spectacular, catalyzing terror attack of 9-11 was not allowed to happen. It was made to happen. But why? Who, other than the devout Muslim suicide warriors posited by the official 9-11 conspiracy theorists, would do such a thing? And for what purpose? And we'll have to leave it there for now. There's, I'm not going to give the ending away, so or ending of this episode. He's doing a part three. So why would they? And let's just say there's been a lot of benefit, like you mentioned just subtly there, uh, Coffer Black. Um, yeah, he wound up being uh, uh, at Blackwater as a vice chairman under Eric Prince, by the way. So, um, and then you have Hallie Burton, and you have uh, Dick Cheney's uh, uh, daughter, who's now the head of uh, the January 6th commission. And Dick Cheney was probably part and parcel with his uh, uh, connections to Hallie Burton and all these other particular uh, companies and financial dealings and wheelings and dealings in regards to Iraq and in Afghanistan. And then, of course, we have have uh, our current president, Joe Biden, who probably has a long and interesting history there as well um, because he was a senator and a vice president under Barack Obama when he was in the room when they supposedly took out Osama bin Laden in 2010 or 11. I can't remember what year it was. It doesn't really matter, does Now does it? We never saw the body. We never, you know, there's a whole host of... Uh, things that are going on and you never you never hear or never get a full disclosure and of course there's there's people out there just like oh this massive conspiracy how do you explain all the dead bodies all the people on the planes uh, how the pilots who would be the pi how did they uh, i you know maybe there's a maybe there was a remote control override maybe there's a host of other things that have gone on i can't i don't have to explain the inconsistencies is like you said, how do you have, and these were all Saudi Arabian, I mean, a lot of these were Saudi Arabian uh, born uh, people um, that were a part of the, the 19, and, and the thing is, is all of this is just, there's just such a web here, and they had information about this situation for years and years and years prior to this, and like you said, they had their phone lines tapped for five years or whatever. You mean they couldn't figure this out? Now this was allowed to happen. Uh, uh, was not. Uh, it was made to happen. But why? You know, it, like I said, and he said it is made to happen. It wasn't just allowed. It was made to happen. So, anyways, when from crisis comes opportunity, and that's where we're at now in uh, 2020, in March of 2020, at least in the United States, uh, by triggering a national emergency. Everybody was allowed to go and, and do the necessary things in order to um, keep people locked down and, and tell, tell us, oh, just 15 days to slow the spread. Hmm. You see where we're at now, don't you? Uh, back then it was, oh, the Patriot Act will protect us. You know, the Department of Homeland Security became a new thing. That was a new department. And then they have a, what, like a $75 billion budget. Uh, notice they got new toys. They got new. Then you have the establishment of the FISA courts. And you have the 
secret investigations that have come out of that. And of course, you know, that's what they use to, uh, uh, pred- to predicate their whole idea about Russia, Russia, Russia with regards to Trump. Don't think that that wasn't all put together by the Clintons and the Bushes. It just so happens. Clinton and Bush, Clinton and Bush. And of course, there's uh, the George Tenet tie there. Uh, uh, and then, of course, then you have the British intelligence angle. They're, the same players come on the come on the on the scene to speak their lines, and they do the same thing to all of us. Uh, when I say that, they do the same thing to all of us. They have a um, unique a unique um, ability to come along and destroy, uh, you know, sanity, and to put us in a fear mode. And a lot of people do feel fear. And of course, if you're rational and sound, and, and I mean, you can you can go through a process. And of course, people will say, "Well, you're just being, you know, you're being irrational about this whole situation. You don't know enough about this uh, construct." This uh, this is a well documented. He documents all his sources and cites all of his sources. Uh, Richard Clark, I, I don't know much about the guy, but he certainly has a a substantial connection to what's going on. To uh, he was the head of he was a t- chief of counter uh, was it say counter terror uh, terrorism uh, I think for the FBI at that time uh, right underneath of like James Comey and those kind of uh, pers- uh, persons or not James Comey but um, Robert Mueller again another another blast from the past who happened to be at the top of the FBI and then later comes comes in and wants to be the FBI director under Trump and then when he gets uh he gets told no then he goes and works to uh undermine Trump through the the Mueller investigation which he can't get into that when it comes to being asked about certain circumstances and whatnot which should kind of give you an idea of where we're at in this country when you have that kind of uh <clears throat> when you have that kind of uh situation where uh, you had the same people keep on com- coming about, and yet they don't, uh, they never offer any a- answers um, to questions that obviously should be either should be asked. Uh, when I say should be asked, or um, <clears throat> and then never, never answered. They're never answered by everybody. So, uh, yeah, Richard Clark was Clinton's counterterrorism czar. Later speculated tipped off about the uh, uh, tipped off about the attack by a retired head of the ISI. That's the Pakistan Intelligence Service that had been long known as an adjunct to the CIA. So that's who that's who Richard Clark is. For those who don't know, I just wanted to go into that uh, for a second. Um, yeah, I've kind of gone through my uh, clicking here. I wrote yesterday, and this is just a general idea about how I think the people that we're dealing with. Uh, how uh, I'm using uh, the Christmas holiday as a way to jump off into the sociopathy of these people, um, the the way they uh, pre- present themselves to uh, to um, uh, others. So I'm gonna read like the read the bit a bit of this, and then I'm also gonna go into another article. But okay, so we'll just go. We'll start there. But we are now in a different era as well. Not by our general desires to evolve into that, obviously. We didn't select these responses of the last two years. More like being dragged, kicking and screaming into a dystopia that ignores Christmas, Christ, and fosters fear, 
and forgetful, forgetfulness of the better spirits and human, and human desires to be left in peace. This is apparent to a growing contention of us that sees that certain group revealing yet again they want to seek to fix all the past, often by erasing it from books to the internet and replacing it with their control mechanisms for the rest of humanity permanently. This indeed puts all of us in grave danger in dire circumstances. This certain group has no use for traditions of or humanity's grace, giving, or forgiving natures. The group is uniquely pathological in their desires to strip humanity of its memories, its better natures, and replace them with an ever-raging conflict that will keep this controlling group above the fray while chaos destroys the human condition at an ever-escalating pace. This is evil. It is not a discussion to say it otherwise, or certainly not one I will entertain further here. The trick of the group incorporates uh, the trick the group incorporates is to guise all their messaging in health and humanitarian packaging, wrapping it with finest paper, but the veneer is exactly that, thin paper. Once unwrapped, it reveals not even a useful lump of coal, but is just an empty black hole, a heartless plan, based in hate, anger, and now a transhumanistic pretense. This group, of course, does not see it that way. The amount of self-delusion is beyond all but the most powerful in station and mind. They use their monies, their propaganda, their connections, and they planned. And they planned some more. They love planning, and then boom, release their trap onto humanity. They've told us all of this in their meager scribblings about their desires to reshape humanity and the world, calling it a fourth industrial revolution. Echoing in secession, a prior pathological desire for a thousand-year rule. Such claptrap was born from a coal place close to the nexus at the cusp of the Second World War. Echoes are visible from this and a host of other certain group members as they know each other well by their ongoing nefarious deeds. They sought and obtained power and hid their manipulations well using underlings, a network, equally disparaging of the human condition. You know them as prime ministers, presidents, chief health officers, financial heads at world organizations, state governors, media empire owners and talking heads, CEOs, and operators of NGO behemoths. Their, boot, their boots seek to hit your neck, neck over and over again for all the pain and suffering they feel you are guilty of in projection. As you are hurting Mother Earth, and causing the climate catastrophe to come. All the messaging about a planet to be dead by 2030 or 2050 if they don't do something to curb your existence, your way of life, extinguishing it as they overtly desire, but just pick more tolerable words to say that, deploying divide-and-conquer tactics, and now the demonization of those that, that will not comply with their wills their transhumanistic agenda wrapped in COVID, climate, and chaos, most of all. The certain group wants the anti-present of revenge. Anti-present uh, as an anti-present. It, 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 it certainly is on their wish list somewhere, along with power, control, submission, entertainment, pain, humiliation, and greed. Their plan will never build back better. Their plan will never reset the world to a better end. If someone believes otherwise, they need to examine why they know not what they do. The savior in this malevolent plan, or saviors, are us that know 
that the power of humanity nearly united against these pathological forces with a distinct obsession with uh, the pathological forces with a distinct obsession with us cannot be allowed to win. We cannot obey their orders. We cannot yield any further. We must protest vigorously as if our lives depend on it. They do, in actuality. The control this group wants, vaccines, boosters, passports, movement tracking, and a wealth extraction via business closures are just the beginning. The third iteration of this master plan started there as well. Many a confused soul has dismissed this because they're either either cognitively can't figure this out or will dismiss it as this can't happen again. Well, others disagree quite significantly. So, I'm a, uh, it goes towards the ending there, but <clears throat> what I'm trying to say, and obviously I said it already, but um, the people that are involved in this, it's over and over again. It's a repetitive cycle. So, if we go back to Bush and the Bush administration, what happened after 9-11? Uh, Congress immediately passed the Patriot Act, pretty much. I think it was by the end of the year. And it just so happened the World Trade Organization uh, allowed in China. Seems almost they were pretty much connected. I have to look back and do a research to find out when uh, when Patriot Act was passed. Well, I must see that was. But quickly. And they're all lined real quickly on something that's not good for us because it's already been thought about for a while. Uh, uh, there's just there's just too much. Um, what do you call it? Um, <clears throat> there's just usually much uh, usually back and forth. So yeah, it was originally published on October 26th of 2001. Um, let me see when when it actually became law. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 I'd have to see what the. Anyways, the point being here is the fact that it it actually was put together in a month, and everything from there became an uh, ostensibly created a new depart new department of homeland security, uh, allowed for wiretapping, allowed them to look at your library records and all this other kind of stuff. They had the pretense. They you know nine eleven. And 9-11, they allowed to happen in many ways and covered up a lot of their uh, misdeeds that were already ongoing. Um, Clinton, even of himself, said, oh, I had the opportunity to take out Osama bin Laden in the in the late 1980s, and he didn't. It should go stand to reason that, uh, hmm, why did you not, why didn't you not do that? Why didn't you go about that? Why Why wasn't that obviously easy to do? What was the benefit for allowing him to live if you if you thought, thought he was a terroristic threat to the na- nation? Your your isn't your job to, uh, um, you know, defend the Constitution and defend, uh, defend the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, he was on a terror watch list at that point. Why weren't you? Uh, why weren't you uh, seeking to do that? Um, if he's such a danger and such a threat, and you'll say, well, if we hit him, you know, another one will rise up. It's like no. Um, I'm not going with that idea. I, I think that's all bullshit. It's all cover for what they did. Um, it's just really, um, it's amazing how we have, uh, allowed this shit to go on and on and on. In the United States of America is one. I mean, we no longer have the ability to, yeah. So it was enabled in the U.S. Congress on October 26, 2001. 
9-11. So we're talking six weeks six weeks later. Uh they came up with this massive broad and, and uh security act against us. And this is uh you know this is the same way with the COVID plan. So it was even quicker. Um they got Trump to sign on to a two point one trillion dollar bill. But that's even more that that isn't even close to what really happened. So the Fed, meanwhile, uh jacked up the money supply. Uh they you know they put like fifteen trillion dollars into the M one, M two uh uh coffers. And now you have massive inflation that's going that is uh, uh following it. It's probably gonna get much worse and most people aren't even aware of it. And that's the second part of this. So like like uh Corbett's uh they, they found out that there was market jiggering before the the actual crisis took place. Um yeah, there's a great deal of uh, stuff that's going to happen here in the future just to do the fact that uh, we have a substantial amount of uh, uh, market manipulation that's going on at present. And this is just echoing, and, and, and when I say echoing, it's it's even a small part of it. Um, remember, uh, <clears throat> so when a company fails, let's just look at Evergrande, for example, in uh, China. Now, China is a very much a different system from us. At least <laughs> we say it's a different system. It really isn't, but it's a different um, a disclosure system. Let's put it that way. Um, Evergrande failed and is failing, and it's about it was about the size of Bear Stearns in terms of uh, it was like a three hundred billion dollar company. Uh, it, for those who remember Bear Stearns, uh, they were founded in the nineteen uh, twenties, and then they collapsed in uh, two thousand eight. And uh, J.P. Morgan Chase bought them out in March of 2008, I think for like ten bucks a share. It almost, I think it was, it went down to two dollars before they settled on ten bucks or whatever. Anyway, but that that the the cracks in the system happened in uh, the summer of 2007. Uh, there was a there was a bank called Northern Rock that's located in Britain. Uh, I think it's even uh, it's throughout the UK, United Kingdom. I didn't know much about it. I just know that it, it had it went went south real quick, and then there was a Bear Stearns hedge fund that also led the way. They were the first to collapse, and thereafter you had Countrywide Financial, and then you had a host of other um, bigger entities that were involved in this mortgage. Uh, the it always starts with real estate. There's always like a real estate. There's always an asset bubble, and real estate is a primary example of an asset bubble that's where we're at now um just recently that's the way it's been going so nothing nothing goes on without it being a uh what would you say a their prior circumstance of that going on so let me see if uh let's see if i can uh play mr kramer of course you don't realize there's a Watching the street.com TV. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi here with Jim Kramer, contributor to Real Money. Hi, Jim. Hi. You recently wrote a story on the Bear Stearns spillover, right. or rather, no spillover. You think that their this mess is This is about J.P. Morgan and Merrill Lynch punishing uh, Bear. Mm -hmm. it, now, I think unless you worked at these places, you don't understand the hatred here. They, they pulled the credit lines for these guys. It's not a credit issue, it's a liquidity issue. The actual paper. 
that's underneath this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But Bayer levered up on the paper. The paper, uh, they got withdrawals as people were worried about subprime. So now they have to, they, they had a capital call. These are the hedge funds that had a capital call. Well, it, it's very embarrassing to Bayer um, if you cut the credit line of, sure. of this firm. No one cares, by the way. It, it, the credit committees at J.P. Morgan and Merrill Lynch, they're just out to try to stop any sort of loss. So you can't appeal to them. That's like appealing to a stone wall. But if this were Joe Blow hedge fund, I think they probably would have let him go. So I get it. But why then, if you're a Bear Stearns, why not get the PR engine to work? And, and, and Because this is so underreported. I've never really – to now, it's always been about this. It's a Bear subprime issue. It's a credit worthiness issue. Bear doesn't issue. do that. Isn't they it, just don't do it that. It would be – I mean – so, they don't do that. They, they're, ne- they're in the Henry Ford never explain, never complain category, and I, I respect that. Really? And what yeah. service is that to Well, the see, public, there's guys then? like me who know what they're doing, mm-hmm. who can go tell people, but we're just in the minority. And it's so much easier. You get that? Why don't you just trigger the PR machine? So there you go, the spin machine, the spin cycle, the propaganda machine. And this was in 2007 that he made this statement. Uh, of course, recently, Kramer became uh, uh, a quite entertaining when he came out and said, yeah, they need to use deploy the military to put the vaccines in people's arms. Kind of lets you know where he's at in terms of a human being. So 14 years later, you know, we're in a, a, in a manufactured crisis. Uh, that was a manufactured crisis. Remember, Bush was the one who said, hey, you know, Let's uh, make sure everybody owns a house. You know, let's some um, freewheeling. Let Wall Street. You know, Wall Street has these models and they know what they're doing. And we don't want to. We don't want to be mean to people. But actually, that was all a debt. That this has always been a a tactic too. So it, it, you know, why would you do this? Uh, you want to throw easy money at people, easy credit per se. So you give them, you eliminate the, you create ninja loans, no assets, no no income. Uh, you make it easy for people to get involved in, in in real estate transactions. It's a debt entrapment scheme, and it is for the normal people. So you have somebody who doesn't really understand, uh, you know, real estate doesn't understand. You know, they're sold on the idea, and the banks are more than willing to get. I mean, usually the, there used to be some. Uh, traditional minimum standards in order to, you know, not only just FICO scores, but, you know, they want they want somebody who is stable. Well, when you destabilize an economy, which is what we did throughout the, you know, when we um, started offshoring all our uh, manufacturing. So from 2004, uh, China was getting stronger and we were purposely doing this. We were undermining our own industries. Of course, you know, then this is, like I said, this goes under uh, this is, it doesn't matter who, who's in office. So whether you, you know, consider yourself a liberal or conservative, um, or leftist or whatever you want to call it, 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 it was just, it's just bad, horrible policy. Um, you know, the idea was, is they were trying to make money and they were doing it. But meanwhile, you were opening up the, the credit spigot and letting people who were, in other words, um, People got themselves over over leveraged. They were over leveraging people, while banks were over over leveraging themselves as well. Um, but the banks weren't going to ever be held responsible for that. But people are held responsible for it because, of course, if your house goes into foreclosure or you lose your job and therefore can't make the payment on your 
newly acquired house that you've got a, a you know a easy loan on but it has a uh, um, interest kicker in other words you know the first two years you got it at a reasonable rate of interest but then the 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 interest rate jacks up and then people don't understand how much of an impact that's going to happen and you lose your job then the then of course the, then you have to file bankruptcy and then now you're back to square one and they and then the the house that got built will wind up back on the market um yeah it just creates it creates a multiple it creates multiple problems throughout society but if you want to destabilize society then those people will suddenly run to wanting more socialistic programs. In other words, you're pushing people towards a, uh, towards less responsibility, more uh, less independence, and then of course that you know that that benefits the United States government, which is of course what they wanted. So by 2010, 2011, you had Obama come in, who was just really the the uh, the other side of the same coin when it comes to uh, Bush. He actually increased uh, uh, surveillance. He actually had an attack on uh, the American citizen overseas and executed him without a, without going through a justice system. And somebody will say, "Well, you know, you were okay with doing it to a foreign national, a foreign national that wanted a, a evident a issued a fatwa who wanted to do damage and harm to the United States." Well, I don't even know if that's all all it was cracked up to be, but. The point being is, is we assisted them for a decade, uh, and that's what Corbett has uh, uh, ferreted out that you know we had numerous opportunities to to handle that terroristic threat, and yet we did not. We had numerous opportunities to arrest people, and we did not. We had people that were tracking down the financial uh, dealings uh, with the Saudi Arabians, and then they were told to shut the hell up and stop it investigating. And then this kind of goes forward, like I said, then you had, like I said, Obama pushed for the socialism of the healthcare system. And you see what the healthcare system is like now. The healthcare system, you have a bunch of scaredy cats who can't can't uh, offer medicine, won't offer treatments. They get you in the hospital and the first thing they want to do is put you on a ventilator. And they want to pump or disappear into your system. And it's game over for those people. But, uh, hey, you know. It seems to be the way uh, these people want to work, and it's quite interesting. I, I can go down the road with COVID. Uh, using COVID as a cover to do all kinds of uh, nasty things to people, and then you go to the election and how that was set up. COVID was a, a, a cover-up operation so that the, the blue states could do what they needed to do, and of course they made it easier to uh, to, to vote by mail across the country. Which, of course, anytime you have that, you're going to have you're introducing a massive uh, opportunity for fraud, uh, either either purposeful fraud by an individual or mass fraud by groups of people that happen to control the election uh, uh, tools and instruments because they can do all kinds of things to make, make things happen. Uh, they can duplicate. Uh, as a matter of fact, they did that in Arizona. It was found that one out of about 100... One out of every 114 ballots that were uh, analyzed, they analyzed every last ballot in Maricopa County, and they found that people, they found that there were duplications of two, three, and four times for one out of every 114 votes cast. Now that isn't a process that is uh, robust. That is not a robust process at all. 
out of the one, I think it was like 1.8 million or whatever it was. Let's just say it was a substantial amount and leave it there. But um, <clears throat> the fact that uh, Dr. Shiva's uh, analysis uh, bore that out and they have the, the actual the actual receipts, basically the, the scans of all those ballots and those scans of those ballots resulted in that and they were able to confirm that. I mean, if you were in any process and you said that one out of every 114 uh, in a um, company, for example, we had that many errors going on, you would have a very bad process. Any engineer would say that is a horrible process, you know, especially in the, in the era of, quote, Six Sigma, which is 3.4 errors out of every million. We're not even asking for Six Sigma. We're just asking for, like, you know... <laughs> Something along the lines that would be much more beneficial. I mean, uh, even if it was uh, uh, three sigma or four sigma, it would be a hell of a lot better than that. Anyways, so yeah, the the idea here now is the instability of sought, and then you have the January sixth uh, situation where we know there's been some there was some FBI infiltration. Uh, we have uh, the the Rhodes scandal, the Rhodes. Uh, who's not being prosecuted, who's not being uh, arrested, and he was uh, part and parcel to that situation there. So there's a host of things that are going on. I could go on further, but uh, nevertheless, I think we're we're at the point where, um, and I'll look at the, the financial part of this, the problem is, is that we're levered up. This whole, this whole, this not only just the country, but the entire world is levered up so substantially that they have to, they're going to crash this market on all our heads. Now, the person that does this analysis is probably doing doing it for end of year situations, but the frankly that that isn't to me is not the, the the bigger money shot. So he uses Thomas Jefferson who makes makes these statements. We must uh, and and then he, he uses them as the foundation of that, and then he makes this statement. Uh, this guy Geiritz. We must remember the Fed is a private bank that totally controls the U.S. financial system. And as long as the U.S. dollar remains the reserve currency of the world, the Fed also controls major parts of the global financial system. Jefferson will also be right regarding inflation and deflation. The current financial system is now entering a phase of inflation, most probably leading to hyperinflation, as I've discussed many times in my, my articles. But before this financial system ends, the totally worthless debts must totally worthless debt must be destroyed through a deflationary implosion not only of the debt but also the bubble assets financed by printed money created out of thin air so deflationary depression is is likely to to be the end of yet another failed experiment of fiat money system which was doomed the day it was created on Jekyll Island 111 years ago jefferson of course told us this this would happen already over 200 years ago if history teaches us anything, it is that no one learns from history and everyone thinks that it's different today because we are here. So the idea is, is that we're levered up so much and they're using derivatives to do this stuff. And derivatives are like the credit default swaps. And there's a substantial amount of this stuff out there. And I'll read his uh, little explanation and then we'll close out this broadcast. So banks like Deutsche Bank or J.P. Morgan have reportedly reported gross outstanding derivatives of 40 to 50 trillion but all banks net their gross amounts of derivatives down to insignificant levels arguing that these 
that these low and totally misleading amounts are their real exposures. Well, the banks can fool some of the people some of the time, but in the end we know who the real fools will be. The problem with netting is that when counterparties fail, gross risk remains gross. Derivatives have, have been a most incredible money spender for banks and other financial entities. There are today so, so many opaque ways of creating and hiding derivatives from the official reporting that no one has a clue of the real amount outstanding, but it could easily be in the quadrillions of dollars. That's like a thousand trillion. Remember that virtually every financial instrument created today consists of derivatives, whether it is an ETF stock or bond funds, interest rate swaps, forex swaps, mortgage loans. The list is endless. So they're going to be a county, there'll be some kind of failure, a crack, a county, a counterparties will fail. Central banks will need to print all that money to prevent banks from failing. So if my assumptions are right, global debt will grow from three, uh, 300 trillion to three quadrillion in the next five to ten years. That's this is his analysis. But I will probably be wrong on many accounts. Likely it won't take as long as ten years. I, I would concur. I think it'll only take eighteen months max. I think we're already at that because there's gonna be so many cracks and crevices and things. Uh there's probably people that are already getting ready to line up to file bankruptcy uh, at a low at a personal level. And the government isn't going to be able to, the government can't, uh, the government always Fs up everything they touch. Um, uh, contrary to popular belief, free markets do have have their place. The reason why people don't want free markets is because there's winners and losers. And there are people that continually, because of their motivations, don't like to create things or don't like to be involved in anything like that. Labor is always, yes, labor is probably underserved and underpaid in relationship to the people who create businesses and whatnot. That being said, the survival rate in business is so small that to make maintain a business, you, you have to be as, uh, I hate to say it, cutthroat as possible, but it isn't even about that. It's just about are you allowed to stay in business without having other other larger businesses, other mature businesses take you out almost immediately. Anybody who has a great idea or has a great, ability to create a business that will survive in, a, in an actual real business, uh, you know, something tangible, not a service-related business. The services are, you know, when I say services being non-tangible, I mean, I'm saying making a product, services industries, there's many of them, and service businesses are, are useful for what they do. It's just the fact that uh, being able to create something that's wholly unique and, and um, you know, wholly unique and sellable that people want, desire, and does something for their lives is a very, it takes a very, it takes a mastery of so many skill sets that um, people, uh, people should be amazed, but often aren't. They think business is just easy, and it isn't. It's very difficult. At least it's very difficult to launch a business and maintain it and make it happen, um, you know, through creativity and knowledge and financing and getting people on board with it it's that's the reason why people like to stick to certain certain things that they know are money makers like real estate they like to speculate they think speculation is better and in many ways it is because it's it, it seems so easy to get involved in but it also is easy to lose your shirt in uh, and and then people complain about you know obviously fraud and whatnot and they have a good reason to because 
as uh, Corbett pointed out in his uh, analysis, you know, there were people front running the market on the 9-11 and there's been people front running the market during COVID. So, yes, we have a, we always have these certain group of people who are creating this chaos. And until you start bringing these people to justice and until people that are in the, in the, in the business of quote unquote doing justice, you're never going to get this solved. Um, another little hindsight thing I just thought of. You notice, or do you, if you remember during his broadcast, he mentioned the Southern District of New York. So the Southern District in New York and the D.C. Circuit are corrupt and poisonous to the nth degree. Uh, they hide all their hide their crimes by controlling certain districts and entities, so they can run cases through them in order to achieve their goals. So. Uh, anytime you hear about the Southern District of New York, you might as well just say, you know, there's going to be a hustle or fraud there. So anyway, on that note, I'm going to end it. I've uh, talked for quite a long time. Um, not that that is the sole reason why I'm ending it, but uh, you realize it, when you start doing these kind of broadcasts, you realize uh, how difficult it is for someone to, you know, have a discussion for three hours and, and how hard it is to put together that on a daily basis. And you should commend people that can do that. Uh, I mean, obviously, once you get it down, it's easier. But on a on another note, uh, going towards the end of the year, uh, when I talked about resolutions, I think our everybody's resolution, and my advice is to get yourself a piece of land or a piece of certain ownership. Uh, you need to stock up food. You need to stock up armaments or a way to defend yourself. You need to get away from the cities and, uh, you know, have clean water, have a clean water source or work with a neighborhood cooperative of some sort um, uh, for about the food and, and whatnot. And you need to learn how to be independent uh, with your electricity or ability to generate that. So, for example, you know, obviously there's generators and whatnot, but uh, this is where... Uh, renewable sources aren't aren't so bad because you're you're going to have to make it off the grid, which means that you know solar panels are are acceptable. Uh, believe it or not, windmills might be acceptable depending upon where you live. In other words, if you can figure out a way to make it happen, as you create electricity or a water source, obviously you can use a uh, use that too. Uh, and you need to be ready for uh, that being a problem for the government because the government always finds finds reasons to dislike people or, or on their own so um i hope everybody has a great 2022 uh that'll probably be when i'll do my next broadcast if, if not if before then uh i thank you all god bless the united states of america and uh god save the world